The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. This morning's sermon is titled, Jesus on Palm Sunday. We are in John 12. If you missed it, it is page 1068 in the Pew Bible. You'll want to be in the Pew Bible if you don't have yours, because we will interact with John 12 throughout the time in the text this morning. There really are three elements that happen in today's passage. They recur from different angles, but they don't change. Here's what the three elements are. The first is people express interest in Jesus. Various reasons in various ways, but people express interest in Jesus. And then the crux of the passage, Jesus explains the true nature of his mission and the true nature of discipleship. Why did he come, and what does it mean to have a relationship with him? That's the crux of the passage. And then the third element is Jesus calls for a response. Those elements will be seen a couple times, but people have interest. Jesus explains what that really means, and then he calls for a response. We're in John 12. We pick up where our brother left. He read 12 through 19. And in 12 through 18, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem on what we now refer to On Palm Sunday, I want you to notice just verse 12. Verse 12 says, the next day. And it means the day after what? And as he read, it means the day after the chief priest added Lazarus to their hit list. So they'd already decided we're going to murder Jesus. And then they added Lazarus. We're going to murder Lazarus as well. And they tell us the reason. Because we don't want people to believe in Jesus. Now the day after that is Sunday. It is Palm Sunday. To help your mind's eye picture it, Passover was this week. And so multitudes of people from all over Israel would make their way to Jerusalem. Most scholars think this year, which would have been probably AD 33, about 3 million people would have been in the city. So there's a crowd already in the city. There's a crowd coming to the city. And the crowd is whipped up into a frenzy, waving palm trees as a sign of honor and celebration for a victorious person and shouting aloud, Hosanna, in verse 13. Hosanna is a Hebrew word that in its original meaning meant help or come save us. But it came over time to add this connotation, help has arrived. So it moved from a plea to a praise. It moved from a cry to a celebration. So this is a coronation, Hosanna, and as they call him in verse 13, he is the king of Israel. This is a quotation from Psalm 118, 25 through 26. This is the Hebrew Hallel, which people would sing on their way up to these annual festivals. So they are now attributing this festival to Jesus. But Jesus' entrance is striking. He rides in on a donkey, in fact, a baby donkey. Not a war horse, but a donkey. Now, the text tells us that this fulfills prophecy, Zechariah 9, verse 9. And that's wonderful. This is a fulfillment of the Word of God. But the better question maybe is, but why would God have prophesied that He would be on a baby donkey? Well, the answer is because this should have been a clue as to why he came and to what it means to follow him. 
Stanley Hauerwas taught at Duke from 1983 to 2013, and sometimes he had some helpful things. This is one of the helpful things he wrote. He said, on the one hand, this looks like all other triumphal entries. 200 years earlier, Simon Maccabeus had defeated foreign armies and kept Israel independent. And he rode into Jerusalem with people shouting cheers and waving palm branches because he had delivered them. But Jesus' entry parodies the entries of kings and armies. Victors do not ride into capital cities on donkeys, but on fearsome horses. And yet this victor does not, because he will not triumph through force of arms. Already the fact that he chose to come in on a baby donkey indicates that Jesus will not come to crush, but to be crushed. And this gives an indication of what it means to follow him. Following Jesus will not be calling the strong to trust in their strength because he has come in in weakness, but it will call in those to follow him in humility. Now, at this point, the clamoring crowd doesn't see that. Their fantasy is of a powerful and strong Messiah, of a political ruler. So we read at the end of the text, the crowd doesn't understand his purpose, nor do the disciples They won't until he's glorified later. But at this moment, they're excited because he's risen Lazarus from the dead and he's come to town. So their interest is in Jesus, but it's yet to be corrected. Well, join me now in verse 19. There are others who are interested in Jesus and the other person interested in Jesus here are the Pharisees. I think this verse is worth pausing on because of what he has to say. Verse 19. So the Pharisees say to one another, you see that we're gaining nothing. What do they mean gaining nothing? We're not succeeding in silencing Jesus. And now they say hyperbolically, look, the whole world has gone after him. We're picking up in John 12 because it's Palm Sunday. And of course, we can't go through every chapter that's preceded this. But let me tell you the highlights of what the conflict has been between Jesus and these Jewish religious leaders so that you understand why they're so angry here in John 12. This will be a quick overview, but I, I hope to touch on the chapters preceding. In John chapter 2, at the wedding of Cana, Jesus takes jars that were for purification and he fills them with, with wine. Already there's a little bit of a problem. In John chapter 3, Jesus meets one of the Pharisees by night. This is Nicodemus and tells him that he doesn't understand the scriptures at all, (laughs) that he needs to be born again. You can see the conflict rising some. In chapter 5, the conflict really escalates because Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Now, there's nothing wrong with healing on the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath to be a blessing, not a burden. But the Jewish religious leaders had made up hundreds of man-made rules that were kept kept you from doing things that were a blessing on the Sabbath. In John 5, there's a showdown. Jesus says, what is easier, to say, pick up your bed and walk, or to say, your sins are forgiven? And he pronounces the forgiveness of sins. They say, you can't do that. Only God can do that. That's exactly why he said it, because that's who he is. Then the end of John 5, Jesus really cuts to the heart of the Pharisees' problem. He says, you search the Scriptures because you think in them on their own you have eternal life, but they're actually written about me. If you understood what Moses was writing, you would come to me because Moses wrote about me. Now in John 7, the showdown gets even worse. At this point, Jesus has gained a reputation. He's walked on water. He's miraculously fed thousands of people. And this is now the Feast of Booze or Tabernacles. 
And at this festival, Jesus gets up and tells them that they don't even keep the law of Moses themselves. The very law they use to bludgeon others and claim their own moral superiority, they fail by if they were to treat it honestly. In John 8, they say, well, we have parentage. Abraham is our father. Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. They pick up stones to kill him. John 9, Jesus heals a man born blind. And when that man is born blind, he goes and tells the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, there's no way he could heal you because he's a sinner. The man who was previously blind says, all I know is I couldn't see and now I can. And I don't think a sinner could wield the power of God. And then they tell him, well, you're a sinner too. Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 9, the Pharisees say, are you calling us blind as well? Jesus says to them, no, your problem is not that you're blind. Your problem is that you do see. You see enough to know what you're rejecting. You're rejecting me. John 10, Jesus says he's the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep, but he can raise it again because he and the Father are one. They say, are you claiming to be one with the Father? And they pick up stones to stone him. And then John 11 is the climax because in John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And Jesus knows that when he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he is putting himself in the tomb. And then the Pharisees plot to murder him because now his popularity has so overtaken their political position that they have everything to lose. Let me explain to you the difference in conviction and character between Jesus and the religious leaders of the Jews in the first century. The Jewish religious leaders believe that the purpose of the Bible is to gradually obey enough to achieve your own righteousness, especially when you obey man-made opinions and authority. Their motivation is their own power and position. As Caiaphas says in John 11, we can't let Rome take away our position. Jesus conversely teaches, no, the purpose of the Word of God is to point to the Messiah, to point to faith in who God has provided for salvation. And his motivation is not to clutch power, but to give his life selflessly. This is a good time for me to remind you of the big point of the book of John and indeed of the Bible. Listen this morning. People are not brought to God based on our gradual obedience or our acceptance by man-made authority or human opinion. People are brought to God only through faith in the finished work of Jesus the Christ. There is no other way. This is the heart of the showdown. And that's why Jesus uses metaphors throughout his teaching that indicate that we come to him with nothing and find him to be everything. Think of it in John 6. He says, if anyone is hungry, come and eat. If someone invites you to eat, they mean you don't have anything, but I have what you need. If anyone is thirsty, come to me. They mean you don't have what you need, but I have what you need. If anyone is in darkness, come to the light. So Jesus offers himself because he is all that is needed. And the Pharisees hyperbolically complain, it's as if the whole world is going to go to him. And then in John 12, verse 20, they speak more truly than they thought. So pick up with me in verse 20. Indeed, the world is starting to come to him. So John 12, verse 20, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, probably because Philip and Andrew are Greek names who is from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus, meaning we wish to have an audience with him, to speak to him. 
Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, their question to you may seem simple, but at this point in history, it was a really difficult question to know the answer to. Will Jesus allow an audience with non-Jews? Remember, in Matthew 15, a Canaanite woman came to Jesus to ask for healing, and Jesus told her this, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So will Jesus help someone who is not a Jew by heritage, who does not have Israelite background? And in fact, what we're going to learn is that's actually the very reason he came. Romans 1 picks up on this, bringing up the word Greek again. Romans 1.16 is wonderful. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek See, in this passage, the very thing the Jews think he's come to do is the opposite of what he's come to do. If he came for what the crowd thinks he came for, then there's no hope for the Greeks. That's why he's going to explain what his true mission is. So part one was people express interest in Jesus. We have the crowds, we have the Greeks, we have the Pharisees. But now part two, and this is the heart of today's teaching, Jesus explains his true mission and what it truly means to be one of his followers. And pick up with me now in verse 23. Here he answers his true mission in the earshot of the Greeks, but more than the Greeks, of the crowd. Here's why I came to Jerusalem. Actually, here's why I came to earth. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I told you I think this is the crux of the teaching, so I'll go a little slower on these verses here in the middle. Look again in verse 23, some important themes. He says the hour. Now, if you know John's gospel at all, you know that the hour is this key beating drum throughout the book. The hour, the hour, the hour, the hour, the hour. All the verses preceding this one, the hour's in the future tense. The hour's going to come. The hour's going to happen. The hour's going to happen someday. But now here in verse 23, he says, no, the hour is now. The time has come. So what the hour is then is his death. But notice how he describes it in the end of verse 23. He describes his death as his glorification. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. We tend to use the word glory to mean um, something that has praise or has attention to it. But actually the word glory in the Bible works the opposite direction. It means the revelation of beauty that already is. So here's what he's saying. The most clearly you'll ever see the beauty of God's glory is at the cross. Here's the hour where the Son of Man is revealed in all His beauty and God's glory is revealed. It's when He dies. And now notice verse 24. He wants to make the point that His death is necessary. It begins with truly, truly. But if you're someone who underlines your Bible, underline the word unless. There is no other way. The only way for God's purposes to be accomplished, His good purposes, is for Jesus to die. The agricultural metaphor is simple. Unless grain dies, it cannot produce life. The life that comes is required for the death to precede it. Now this subverts the expectations of the crowd. 
Here he is moving westward from the Mount Olives. Everybody's shouting Hosanna. They're waving palm branches. They're making a royal red carpet. They are worked up in excitement. And this is not some backwater city. This is Jerusalem, the capital city where you're supposed to hail Caesar as king. And they're hailing Jesus as king. That means this is a point of no return. Once he comes into this city and they're hailing him as king... Nothing else can happen other than what he said was going to happen. He is going to die. But he's going to die so that he can bear fruit. He's going to die because though he is worthy to be coronated as king, he's come willing to be crucified as Savior. This is the real reason he came, not just to Jerusalem, but to earth. And now verse 25 and 26, based on that, he explains, so here's what it really means to be a Christian. Here's what it really means to be a follower of Jesus. Look in verse 25. Whoever loses his life, sorry, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Let's go slowly and trace the meaning. Let's put our own personal pronoun in here. If I love my life supremely, I will lose my life ultimately. Now the next phrase, if I hate my life in this world willingly, then I'll keep my life eternally. And what does that hinge on? Verse 26 says it hinges on whether or not I'll serve Jesus. That means hating my life or loving my life is in reference to who will be supreme, who will be the center of the universe, who will be king, me or Jesus. Now notice the promises of verse 26. If anyone serves me, so if you recognize me as king, then you must follow me. Where I am, there will my servant be also. Follow Jesus is to dwell with Jesus. And then the phrase is repeated at the end. If anyone serves me, so if anyone recognizes me as superior, me as supreme, notice the promise. It's incredible. The Father will honor him. Now, I told you, Jesus' message is a strong contrast to the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, you need more self-control. You need more self-discipline. You need a little self-denial. Jesus says, no, you need self-displacement. You need total surrender. You don't need a little improvement or a little more spiritual productivity. You need to totally surrender the idea that you are king and you need to come and receive me and me alone as king. There is no other way. To follow Jesus means to be led by Jesus, not to try to control and manipulate Jesus to my own ends. Do you know what this means? Jesus cannot be liked. He can be loved. He can be hated. He cannot be liked. Reynolds Price was born in Macon, North Carolina. He taught at Duke also as an English professor. I don't know why I'm quoting two Duke people this morning. I'll try to weave in NC State professors next Sunday. We'll see how that goes. Uh, in his essay in the Gospel of John, I think this paragraph is really helpful. He wrote this. In 2000, if 2,000 years of pious handling had not dimmed John's story and its demand, this Gospel would still be seen as the burning outrage it continues to be. It is either a work of madness or it is a blinding revelation. The acts it portrays, the claims it advances from its very first paragraph demand that we make a hard choice. 
If we take the gospel writers seriously, then we must finally ask the question he thrusts so fragrantly toward us. Does he bring life-transforming truth, or is this one gifted lunatic's tale of another lunatic wilder than he? Jesus cannot be liked. He can be loved, or he can be hated. You can accept him for all that he is, Lord, Savior, and King, or you reject him. As you know, obviously, my name is Josh Scally. And so if someone decided to have me over for lunch or dinner and they said, yeah, we want Josh to come over, but we don't want Scally to come over, then they want somebody other than me to come over. Or if they say, we want Scally to come over, but we don't want Josh to come over, again, someone other than me is coming over. And if your approach to Jesus has been, there are things about him that I like, and there are things about him that I don't. I appreciate his example as Savior. I'm not willing to follow him as Lord. Then whoever it is that you've had a relationship with is not Jesus. Jesus is all that he is, King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior of sinners, all or none, loved or hated. You embrace him for who he is, or you reject him eternally. Now this morning you could say, man, that is a hard saying. Yes, it is. But notice in Jesus' own statement, what is lost is not even worthy to be compared with what is gained. In the metaphor in 23 and 24, when there is a kernel that dies, notice it bears much fruit. And when he says we need to hate our lives in this world, what do we gain? Our lives eternally. And when we follow Jesus on the Calvary road, then we dwell with him in the glorious heavenly road. And yes, we become his servants, but notice how verse 26 ended. Then the Father honors us. See, I hope you saw there that the gain is incomparable to the loss and the promise comes from the power of the giver and that person is Jesus. In the agricultural metaphor, how many grains die? The answer is just the one. Didn't he say, if it dies alone? And yet it bears much fruit. Don't you see what Jesus is saying? He's the one who incurs our loss and we're the ones who receive his gain. It is his death, and yet it is our fruit. By union with him, we receive all that we need. He dies in our place because of our sin, but we receive the eternal fruit that he has secured. Do you know what this means? Jesus is not dying as a pattern. He's dying for our pardon. He's not dying as a model for good people to go try and follow. He's dying because we as sinful people have made his death necessary, and yet in love he bears it for our eternal blessing. Well, now Jesus calls for a response, so let's pick up in verse 27. These are the three themes, they're the elements woven throughout the the book. First, people express interest. Then he explains what that really means. Here's my real mission. Here's what it really means to follow me. But then he demands a response. Verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this very purpose I have come to this hour. Here's why I came. 28, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God the Father only speaks audibly three times in Jesus' lifetime, during His baptism, during His transfiguration, and here. 
Father, glorify your name. And they all hear. The Father say, I have and I will. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. This is why he came to Jerusalem. This is why he came to earth. God the Father in love has sent God the Son, and God the Son in love has come willing to die in our place. And notice what he says his death will do in verse 31. In his death, the world is judged. The consequences of sin are dealt with. In his death, the rule of this world, that's Satan. Satan is dealt his death below. And in his death, all peoples are drawn to himself. When Jesus is literally raised, elevated in the air on a cross, he figuratively calls all peoples to the cross for the height and pinnacle of our salvation. So how will they respond? Verse 34. So the crowd answered him, Well, we've heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Why are they mad that Jesus wants to die? Why would that make somebody angry? Why are they mad that Jesus wants to die? I mean, he comes into town, they're Hosanna, they're waving palm branches, everybody's thrilled. But then when he says, no action, I'm here to die, then they're upset. Why? Because if he's there to die, then apparently the only bad people are not just the Romans. They're bad too. That's the reason people still are upset that Jesus came to die. Jesus' death outs all of us as sinners worthy of death. See, they're okay if he comes and gets rid of Rome because then they're the good guys and Rome are the bad guys. But if he comes to die for sinners, that includes us, all of us. Jesus doesn't come to bring judgment. He comes to bear our judgment. In love, Jesus came to die because in truth, we deserve to die. You know what this also reminds us? They are so adamant that their greatest need is to get rid of political oppression from Rome. And yet God knows better than they do what their greatest need is. Did you know that God knows better than you and I do what our greatest need is? Sometimes we have a need and we come to God and say, God, this is the most important thing. And if you could fix this thing, then I know everything else that matters would be taken care of. But God knows better than we do what our greatest need is. As a pastor, especially in Michigan, it happened more there than it's happened here. But there would be fairly common someone would come up because they would need a pastor. And so they might come at an odd time of day, people from the community. They'd ask if a pastor could meet with them. And most of the time, some major problem had occurred in their life. They had found out someone in their family had cancer. They had found, I remember a guy who came because he just found out he was going to have a baby boy, and so he wanted someone to pray with him and help him. I heard a true story this week that a pastor told of a man who called the church in the, in the middle of the night and said, I have this need. I need you to meet there. The pastor was a really gracious guy, so he meets him down at the church at 3 in the morning. The pastor gets there. It's groggy. It's the middle of the night. The man says to him, oh, I'm really sorry but you can go home now. I just got the scans back and I don't have cancer, so I don't need a pastor anymore. You know, 
So the pastor gets in the car and goes back. I mean, he was too asleep probably to say, actually, you're going to die someday, so you still need to know what I'm going to say. Let me remind us this morning, God knows better than we do what our ultimate need is, and our ultimate need is to be reconciled to him through Jesus. So whatever else is going on in your life, it is not your ultimate need. Your ultimate need is to be made right with God through Jesus. We could think about it this way. God knows what we would ask for if we knew everything he does. He knows what our greatest need is, and our greatest need is him. So now verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Now, I know John and Jesus play with light and dark. I think what he's saying here is you all, we all have a limited window to respond to Jesus. So respond in the urgency of that window according to the urgency of that need. Come to Jesus while you have opportunity before eternal darkness sets in. But now we read some of the saddest verses in the gospel. Look in the end of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Please see how gracious God is. God has sent his son in flesh, in front of their own face. God the son has done myriads of signs, feeding thousands, walking on water, all done by divine initiative, none earned or deserved by the people who are seeing them. All God's grace and initiative to show us more than we need to see. And yet their response is they did not believe in him. Can I remind us this morning, we do not have an evidence problem. We have a sin problem. God has revealed more than enough to us all. And yet their response is to refuse to accept what he is. We see that this is a fulfillment of God's ordination. So let's continue in hard verses 38 and following. So the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he's blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. God's people have a history and we as humans have a history of rejecting the grace of God and God in his judgment, allowing further hardening to take place to cause us to remain stubborn. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, the glory of Jesus, of whom he prophesied and spoke of him. And yet God is going to use human evil to accomplish his good purposes. And so the cross will occur. But now 42 and 43 give us a more understandable motive as to why they rejected Jesus. Verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes 
from God. I know scholars debate what the level of their faith is here in verse 42 because it says they believed in Him, but they wouldn't confess it. But if we just are dealing honestly with John chapter 12, didn't He just say in verses 23 through 26 that you have to be willing to hate your life or you're going to lose it? You have to be willing to follow Him in order to be with Him? So I think we have to conclude that whatever kind of belief they have here is not what a Christian has. I think it's fair to say there is an eternal difference between belief of Jesus and belief in Jesus. Here are people who think Jesus probably is who He said He is, but they love their life more than the consequences that might come if they follow Jesus as King. These are people who know the truth but refuse to surrender. Let me give us a reminder from this. If you've ever lusted for people's praise, if you've ever thought, man, I hope a lot of people notice me and I become a celebrity of sorts, then I encourage you to remember how quickly Good Friday follows Palm Sunday. Surely some of the people who shouted Hosanna in a few days shouted, crucify Him. In our own culture, we build up celebrities and it's become a cultural maxim that we build them up but take more pleasure in tearing them down. This is endemic to the way humans behave. But let me point out to you how different God's approval is. Do you remember what Jesus promised in verse 26? If you will serve me, the Father will honor you. Can I tell you this morning, the Father's love is not fickle. Who the Father accepts and approves and loves. He loves permanently and eternally in union with His Son. The steadfast love of the Lord remains forever. God will love you forever. The world will love you till next week. Here we see in these final verses, Jesus making a final appeal. So look in verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in Me, believes not, in me only, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Here is God's grace again appealing to people to come out of darkness and have light. To have Jesus as Savior is the only way to have God as Father. This is why he connects himself with God. Now verse 47, to have Jesus as Savior is the only way to have the Word Verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Notice Jesus' point is that the word is sufficient to do the judging. John 3 makes a similar point of God's heart right after the most famous verse in Scripture that God so loved the world that He sent His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17 says, For God did not send His Son to condemn the world, but so that the world through Him might be saved. The same intention is given here in verse 47. My intention, my heart, is to save. But if you reject Me, the Word will sufficiently judge you. Verse 49, For I have not spoken... On my own authority. But the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. 
the ultimate need of Jerusalem, the ultimate need for you and I, the ultimate decision on which everything hangs is will I keep myself supreme or will I surrender my life to Jesus so that I can truly live? We know how the end of the story goes in John. John 13 continues the Passion Week. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And then the rest of John's Gospel is about these final days leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection which Jesus willingly embraces in love to rescue us from our sins if we will surrender ourselves and come to Him. But the Bible ends with a sober warning. In Revelation 19, we read that Jesus will return, but He's not riding a donkey this time. He comes back on a white horse. And when He comes back, He's not returning to bear judgment. He's coming back to bring judgment. And in this in-between time, when we have the light, He says, come, eat, take, surrender, live, lest darkness overtake you. As I pray, I want to encourage you to surrender your life to Jesus while you have light. Let me close this in prayer, if you'll please bow with me. Father God, I know that people can be in church and have never surrendered their life to Jesus. Just like there were people among the religious leaders, they believed of Jesus, they just wouldn't give their life to Jesus. Perhaps someone this morning has always been okay with Jesus as long as He's not King. Whatever they've had then is not Jesus. This is the one who left heaven to come to Jerusalem to die because that was the only way for us to have life. We thank You that He did willingly go to the cross and victoriously emerge from the tomb so that through His life, we can bear fruit eternally. We can be honored by the Father whose love will never fail us. But it is a sober warning for anyone who thinks they can walk away from such a great salvation because, Lord, Jesus will return. And when He comes back on a white horse and executes righteous judgment, there is no point of return. So while it is still day, I pray, Lord, that you would bring people to faith in Jesus and use us even this week to lovingly but urgently tell people to follow Christ and give their life to him. In his name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.